Welcome to the Solar Podcast. Today, Dave is speaking with Tim Montague, the founder and host of the Clean Power Hour podcast. Join us as they discuss Tim's journey from environmental activist to solar industry veteran, the keys to starting a successful energy podcast, and how to speed up the clean energy transition. Let's get started on the Solar Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Solar Podcast. I'm Dave Anderson, your host. I'm thrilled to have with me today, Tim. And Tim, uh, I don't often read biographies, uh, but I think yours is uh, deserving of a well-scripted and well-read-out biography. So I'm going to read a portion of this that, that I wrote down here. So uh, Tim is the founder and host of the Clean Power Hour. So obviously, for those that follow podcasts in this space, uh, it's, a, it's a well-known podcast. It's a weekly podcast focused on renewable energy, sustainability, and the clean energy transition. We're definitely going to want to talk about the clean energy transition today. Uh, I know that you have over seven years experience uh, in specifically in solar industry, uh, but you've been doing the solar power, the solar power, oh man, the clean hour, <laughs> the clean power hour podcast since 2017. And uh, I know that uh, you've, you've got over 300 episodes at this point. So when did you, at, at what point, at what episode number did you feel like, Tim, uh, this is officially a thing. I, I, I'm in a flow now and I'm, you know, consistently putting these up in something that I think is sustainable. There was no one moment really, Dave. It, it was a gradual awakening and awareness. I started podcasting solo in 2017. I actually started podcasting in 2013. I had a co-host. We were doing a little tech show with another entrepreneur. And then in 2017, when I went to work at Continental, full-time in solar, doing business development for a large CNI installer, we started SolarWorks for Illinois, which was just designed to educate building owners and facility owners in the Midwest, our market, because nobody really knew still what solar was. We had our first renewable portfolio standard starting in 2008, and that's really the early days, right, for, for renewable energy. I like to say the modern era of solar in the U.S. started in 2010, but, um, but gradually I learned that doing interviews was much easier, and so my show morphed mm -hmm. into an inter interview show, and then I, I launched a news roundup with John Weaver, so now I do both interviews and a news roundup, but again, it's a conversational show, and I love having conversations about solar, wind, batteries, and everything energy transition. Well, in, in addition to hosting your own podcast and obviously doing other interviews that you do, um, you also do some other consulting work. So you spend some time in the solar space, in industry, in addition to just being a guy that talks about it. So I'd love if you wouldn't mind just giving us an overview. What are some of the experiences that you've had in the renewable energy space, both or in sector outside of just the interviewing and the podcasting that you've done? Sure. Yeah. You know, at Continental, we were developing and installing large CNI. These are, you know, 200 kW to uh, five megawatt solar projects. That includes large rooftop and community solar. We have a great community solar market here in Illinois. We're one of a handful of very good community solar markets, even though there's 25 plus states now that have community solar. Technically, there's only a handful of really good markets where there's a growth opportunity like New York and Massachusetts and Minnesota, maybe now California, we'll see. And mm -hmm. uh, so I was doing business development. I'm very interested in construction, even though that was my first foray truly into construction. Uh, so I visited projects in the field a lot, talking to our electricians, our installers, our laborers, uh, talking with manufacturers. I, I'm a geek for product and technology, you know, trackers. It was interesting when we saw fixed, originally what was fixed tilt community solar projects go from fixed to tracker really starting in 2018. And it was just like a switch had been flipped and, and all of the design started coming in tracker. And that's a grand experiment that we're doing. We, we do lots of experiments here in the energy transition. There's yeah. you know, the only constant is change. And that's one of my favorite experiences, honestly, Dave, is that change is a plenty and, and the technology is constantly evolving and markets are constantly evolving. And together we are, you know, clearly building momentum and we see light at the end of the tunnel that uh, the energy transition is going to happen one way or another. Of course, it'll go faster or slower. So there's slight nuances, but 
so much resources now, so financial resources. Capitalism is doing its job, and the energy transition is just full bore. Yeah, any, any consumer of the content that you've been creating over the past several years would know that you're very passionate about this subject. So I'm sure you're no exception. Everyone that we've had on the podcast has some sort of a story. How is it that you became passionate and mission-driven as it relates to um, you know, climate change, this energy transition? Well, thank you. You know, it really stems back to my childhood in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was born in Indiana, but I, my family moved to New Mexico when I was two years old. So I like to say I'm a Midwesterner by birth, and, and my heart is in the Midwest. I keep coming back here. I live in Illinois. <laughs> but I grew up in the Southwest, uh, in the Rocky Mountains, and my dad was an environmental studies professor at University of New Mexico, but also a very uh, techie DIYer. He's a self-taught, I mean, this is just incredible. He's a self-taught programmer, hardcore programmer, uh, self-taught toxics expert. He has, a, he has a degree in American studies, which is a combination of history and journalism, and he wrote two books on heavy metals. And so I was kind of steeped in uh, environmental justice issues. Uh, these are issues of landfills and heavy metals and incinerators and the pollution that coal plants give off. We have some ginormous, or we had some ginormous coal plants in the Four Corners area, which is Navajo country up there in northwestern uh, New Mexico, the confluence of Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Arizona. Those plants are now being replaced with solar and batteries. And of course, there's great solar resources there. It was a matter of the technology adoption curve, right, catching up. We're shuttering a lot of coal plants. So anyway, this environmental justice stuff was in my blood. Technology was in my blood because I was building solar thermal in my backyard. PV was not on the scene at all. This is in the 70s. PV was like $300 a watt. And it was very expensive. It, it was invented in 1954. It's been around for a long time. And, but it's used, you know, back in the 70s, it was only used on satellites, uh, remote applications like telecommunications. It was not a household thing. And there was an energy fair at UNM every summer. We built uh, solar cookers and solar hot water panels to bring to the energy fair. But never, never did I see, I don't think even, uh, anything but a very small solar panel. My brother built a uh, solar-powered car when I was like eight years old. I remember that. So you could get PV on the... Um, not on the internet, but whatever the, you know, we had catalogs before the internet. So that was the, the, the beginnings of a lifelong interest in technology, sustainability, and people, which are the threads that really connect my various careers. Yeah, well, that's amazing. So I didn't, I, I guess I didn't even realize the story of your father being a professor. So um, solar thermal in the backyard, I think I actually interestingly grew up in a coal mining town in eastern Montana. And uh, so I was underneath the shadows of the large smokestacks where they were burning huge amounts of coal to generate electricity uh, to ship it thousands of miles away to Seattle, which was the major purchaser of electricity from eastern Montana. Right. So uh, I, I was surrounded by energy, but in a much different way. In fact, uh, people would oftentimes come to our school um, and, and talk about, hey, that, that, that the, the smoke that you see coming out of those stacks is 90 percent water. And, and we all would clap and talk about how clean that was. And, and at some point you, you think, like, what's the other 10%? <laughs> you know, because there's a lot of stuff coming out of those things. Um, anyway, so obviously uh, you, you have a passion for it, but it's not really until kind of like 2010-ish that you sort of like make your way into this in terms of a profession or a job. What were the things that you were working on before being full bore in solar? Well, I... Went to the University of Illinois to do fundraising for a science and research technology institute called the Beckman Institute. Arnold Beckman was a chemist, and he invented, like, the modern pH meter, among other things. He was an early investor in Silicon Valley in uh, semiconductors. And uh, so that was, uh, that was scratching the technology itch for me. I had been a fundraiser in my dad's company, which was Environmental Research Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to spreading scientific information for lay people who are working on environmental justice issues. And, uh, and the Beckman, as a, as a higher ed fundraiser, the Beckman is a non-degree granting unit, and that was a bit of a clash because the department heads uh, wanted their alumni to donate to the departments. And so I was actually an experiment, unbeknownst to myself, and they laid me off in 2012. And so that was my opportunity to get into green building consulting. I was, I was aware of FIAS, the Passive House Institute U.S., which was established here in Urbana, or Champaign-Urbana, 
and and that was the that was the beginnings of my career as a um, consultant and advisor in uh, in in what I call green building, which of course renewable energy is part of um, renewable energy and energy conservation. So making a built environment that's say eighty to ninety percent more efficient, and I did that for several years, and then. I got a phone call in 2016 from a gentleman named Paul who lives in Western Canada. And he said, hey, Tim, we've reached grid parity with solar. You should look at this. And he was working on a consumer-to-consumer solar company, um, which actually only operated in the U.S. He couldn't even participate, but he was building a team of salespeople. And so that was the wake up. I, I had seen the wind farms come. I thought I would work in the wind industry before I worked in solar. I'd even visited a couple of wind farms and was awed by the power and the glory, really. I, I love wind farms. I don't necessarily want to live next to one. Um, I, I understand that objection that some people have, but but I think they're uh, beautiful to look at. And, and of course, we have wonderful wind resources here in the Midwest. And then we got... Uh, landmark legislation in in December of 2016 called CJA, the Clean Energy Jobs Act. No, sorry, FIJA, Future Energy Jobs Act, followed by CJA, the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act. Anyway, that was the beginning, and I just dove in with both feet. I met some developers. I started doing some project development work, and then I found Continental, and they had been an early adopter. They were an electrical contractor, fourth generation, 100 electricians, big electrical contractor, but early adopter, and and um, it was a it was a good marriage. There were three people in the group at the time when I joined. I was the third person, and then I, I had a good run there for five years doing large CNI. And we were 15 people when I left. I had a fantasy of working in utility solar, so I went briefly to a company called Fossler, which got bought by Babcock and Wilcox, which is a boiler maker, and now getting into renewables. But that was a company in transition, and that was not a happy place. So, and that. That then spurned phase three, which is uh, the Clean Power Hour and the Clean Power Consulting Group, my consulting company. And I help other solar companies and technology companies go further faster in a variety of ways. Yeah. So one of the great things about being a podcaster is is you have the opportunity to not only be a thought leader, but to interview some of the, the great thought leaders in our space for sure. I'd love if you wouldn't mind just sharing what are some of the over the 300 episodes that you've now recorded? What are some of the real surprising moments or surprising things that you've learned since 2017 since when you when you launched the podcast? And I guess it really goes back to 2013 when you really started doing this. But but 2017, I think, is when you started doing these interviews and uh, for the for the Clean Power Hour. Sure. Yeah. You know, and, and it's funny because the the interesting and and legacy guests, those guests who truly have made an impact on the industry are few and far between. Uh, certainly, one of the standout guests, and he's a repeat guest, is Jigger Shah. He's now the head of the loan program office, what we call the LPO, in the Department of Energy. And, you know, Jigger is a, a clean energy professional and uh, investor. He started Generate Capital. And he was kind of the father of the original uh, modern PPA, uh, solar PPA, in the United States, and there's so many alumni from his um, his original company, uh, the name of which I cannot recall right now. But, but anyway, <laughs> uh, Jigger Jigger is a standout. And then just recently, I had another one of these um, real OGs on the show when I was at RE Plus in Vegas. I got to interview Mike Hall, who's the founder of Borrego, and Borrego started as a uh, residential solar installer, then grew into commercial uh, CNI space, became a an EPC. Then they started a development arm, became a vertically integrated uh, developer. And and then they have now kind of sold off the development arm and uh, are now shuttering the EPC. And he started a new company called Anza. But, but Mike got into solar in 2002. There's a, very few people who were into solar before that, just because of the cost adoption curve. Certainly there were off-grid pursuits prior to that. But the, the amazing statistic that I learned in that interview, Dave, was that we were doing a megawatt a year in 2002. We're doing 30 gigawatts this year in the United mm-hmm. States. So a 30,000 time increase. When you, when you do the calculation on the compound annual growth rate, that's a 63% compound annual growth rate for, for the last 21 years, which says a lot about you know how 
lucrative and cost-effective solar power is. And it kind of makes sense when you think about all the energy we get from the sun. We get five to 10,000 times more energy. It used to be 10,000. That was a good statistic. More energy from the sun than all of society uses in a year. And now as we electrify everything, transportation industry, HVAC, we're going to use a lot more electricity. And so but that number goes down. But it's, we're just swimming in energy, right? And photons are free. You need panels. You need technology to capture those photons and convert them to electricity. But that's just a matter of building out the technology. And as we double the adoption of any technology, the price comes down 25%, hence the cost adoption curve, and, and things really start to snowball. And that's what we have on our hands. Yeah, anything that you had sort of presupposed that you learned for the first time in an interview? Like, um, can you recall any moments where you were just shocked by a statistic or shocked by, um, by, by, by something that one of your guests uh, brought to the podcast that you didn't previously sort of presuppose? Um, you know, while I am a technologist uh, and I love new technology, one of the, one of the real... Uh, awakenings during the process of interviewing so many different people, including Jigger Shah, whose motto is deploy, deploy, deploy. We ha truly have the technology to make the clean energy transition. Even with today's existing, you know, 20 to 23% efficient photovoltaics off the shelf, uh, we're good. You know, existing lithium ion technology, two to four hour batteries uh, and pumped hydro. I mean, we have many storage technologies. Wind, wind turbines, of course, we have all the technology we need. It's, it's simply a matter of getting them out into the wild. And there's been plenty of really good analyses of both the, the mining and mineral, you know, um, opportunity, right? Do we have all the lithium, all the copper, all the silver, all the precious metals, all the silicon to, to do that truly? And the answer is yes, we have that, those materials. That's another uh, aha moment. Because that's one of the myths of the energy transition and even energy professionals or clean energy professionals I've heard regurgitate this myth sometimes that, well, it's questionable whether or not we're going to have enough of that precious stuff. I consider oil to be one of the most precious materials. It's truly finite and we should keep it in the ground for a rainy day and not, you know, borrow from our children's and children's children's future, right, by pumping more of that CO2 into the atmosphere, we know that that is going to cause harm. It's not necessarily an existential threat. It's going to force us, though, to really uh, shake things up. It's going to be a constant, like, black eye. And it, and it might bump us back away from the good life that we have in some way, which, you know, is totally TBD. Nobody has a crystal ball, but we see the fires, floods, storms, droughts, and if we could avoid that, why wouldn't we? <laughs> so deploy, deploy, deploy is, is a good mantra. We have the technology. We need more people. People are a limiting factor, Dave. We need a million electricians. We need millions of other professionals and, and tradespeople, right, to actually install all this stuff, design it, engineer it, manufacture it, et cetera. So it's a, it's a very heady time and a very exciting time to be alive. And that's what I tell my children is, yeah, change is, is the constant, and you need to be prepared for change, but it's not depressing. It's just very interesting as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, this energy transition has been an incredible employer of people over the last several years, and I think it's poised to be even more so in the future. I, I will tell you, uh, as, as kind of an interesting first time I've thought about this, is, is that in some ways, I guess, when you're talking about the Earth's resources, coal and oil being those resources. In some ways, I guess it is selfish that we're trying to consume all of those finite resources that we have uh, stored in, in, in inside the earth right now. And um, not to mention, it's probably not the most responsible way to use those resources either the way that we're currently using them. So that's that's kind of a hot take that I'm learning for the first time or thinking about in a different way for mm -hmm. the first time having you on, on the show. And I think that's why these podcast formats are so great is, is they help people uh, think about things perhaps for the first time in a different way. Um, but Tim, maybe if you wouldn't mind, just give us a little bit of an overview. What would, what would someone expect if they were to come and listen to, to, to your show? Well, I do two types of shows. I do pre-recorded interviews like this, 
where I interview an executive from a clean energy company. One of my favorite recent guests was Peter Fikowski. He's an author. He's a scientist. He's a technology entrepreneur. He had a company, still has a company that uses AI for medical technology, image recognition. But he's an astrophysicist by training, got interested in the clean energy transition and climate change. And he did a first principles analysis of what's the problem? CO2 and CO2 equivalents in the atmosphere. There's a trillion tons of pollution that we put up there in the last 150 years. And then, of course, we're pumping about 40 gigatons a year, 40 billion tons, by burning you know, fossil fuels in cars, et cetera, running the economy. But Peter concluded that there are some very simple things we could do for just a billion dollars a year. And so this is, uh, he's another favorite guest that I've had on recently because he's actually causing me to question my mission, which is speeding the energy transition. I think those 40 gigatons that we're attacking are very important, but they're 125th of the greater problem, right? When you think about the trillion tons that are in the sky and it, the sky is, uh, it, you look up and it's amazing, right? It looks so clean and pristine. It's blue. It's hard to imagine that there's a bunch of garbage up there, but there is. If, it, if, if CO2 wasn't completely invisible, it would look like a big garbage dump and, uh, or a running sewer, right? And, and, um, and, and that is causing a massive change in our climate over time, slowly but surely, right? And the rate of, uh, of CO2 of equivalents in the atmosphere are going up. We're not yet going backwards, right? We have 420 ppms now. And, you know, when I was a kid, it was less than, um, I think, 300. So we're going up about a percent a year. So anyway, Peter Fikowski is a great author to check out. He's a good example. Uh, again, a high water mark. But lots of energy professionals. I, I interviewed the uh, CEO of a Norwegian battery company called Fryer. They have uh, adopted a technology out of MIT They've come together with a conglomerate from Japan, and they're building a battery factory in Georgia, creating energy jobs here in North America to fuel both stationary and mobile storage, right? We need a lot of batteries. And, and as you and I know, the IRA last year, of the IRA of 2022 is a complete game changer, and we're now reshoring and onshoring manufacturing jobs related to the energy transition. This includes electric vehicles, batteries, solar panel manufacturing, and, of course, wind turbine uh, parts and pieces. So it's all about technology and the energy transition on, on the Tuesday interviews. And then I do a news roundup with, the, with a journalist named John Weaver, who is also a solar professional. His, his, uh, his, his tagline is commercial solar guy, and that's his company and that's his website. But he's a staff journalist for PV Magazine. So he writes one or two articles a week about technology, about policy, about uh, manufacturing. He's a geek for solar PV technology, and so we're always geeking out on the latest and greatest. You know, perovskites are coming, thin film technology. We're, what we're doing is we're stacking different technologies on top of each other now. So you have PV and then perovskites, and then you get higher uh, efficiency solar panels. We're doing building integrated solar panels, right? Putting solar panels in the cladding, the glass cladding of high-rise buildings at, or in the, in the roof structure itself, not just on top of the roof structure. So BIPV is something we, we're very fond of. We talk about photovoltaic, I mean, agrivoltaics, and that's a topic I've had several episodes on. I've had the agrivolta agrivoltaic consulting group on the show. I've had the ASGA, the American Solar Grazing Association, which is an association dedicated to pairing up grazers and solar developers and these are topics that are near and dear to my heart because I'm an ecologist by training. I was a forest ecologist by training. And I love it that energy, uh, solar energy fields, right, solar, solar farms can be really good for the land, right? You're, you're taking what is today either uh, corn and beans or some type of um, land that's being farmed or grazed and putting it into a solar farm. And you can still raise animals and crops on that land and also use less chemicals, right, um, less intervention, and come out with, theoretically, with, like, organic farm ground after 20, 30 years, which is, which is going to be a win for the, the landowner. It's good for landowners. It's good for the land. It's good for the economy. It's good for local economies because it provides tax resources. So solar, wind, and batteries are really good for local communities also. Yeah, well, 
Thank you. You're hitting so many of the topics that I'm interested in, including some of your favorite episodes as well as some of the technologies. Now, how often do you get into or dive into some of the policies that really sort of drive clean energy in this energy transition? And I'd love to hear uh, sort of your your sense on the current state of affairs as it relates to policy, both locally as well as federally, and some things that you'd like to see happen or things that guests have come onto your show and really advocated strongly for. Yeah, you know, I... I got to interview Amy Hart at RE+. She is the vice president of policy and public affairs for Sunrun, um, the largest residential solar or residential solar and storage company. Sunrun is going to do a gigawatt of solar this year, uh, which gives you a sense, right? The the resi solar market might be five to seven, five to eight gigawatts a year. Um, so Sunrun is is a big chunk of that, and. Um, this episode hasn't dropped yet because it was uh, recorded last week at, at RE Plus in, in Las Vegas. But this is a good teaser for it. Then. Yeah, exactly. And and Amy is, uh, you know, a very storied energy professional. She was involved with the Midwest Renewable Energy Association early on. MREA, as we call it, is one of those, uh, you know, small handful of organizations that was a very early adopter and has been very instrumental both on the policy side and the training side. They have a campus there in central Wisconsin that hosts dozens and dozens of solar professionals every year to get NABCEP certified. Uh, if you don't know what NABCEP is, check it out, North American Board Certified Energy Professional. It's the kind of the gold standard in our industry, and I highly recommend that people check that out. You can get training on heat spraying um, or Solar Energy International, a Colorado organization, or through MREA. So... You know, policy, I like to say, is like the foundation, right? It, it's, the, it's, the, it's the foundation of the building. If you don't have good policy, if you don't have a renewable portfolio standard, if you don't have renewable energy credits or some program that incentivizes the application of solar and wind and batteries, it's going to languish, right? The technology is not going to just install itself. And we're, we're displacing grid power and utilities have a business model that is very stodgy. It works, and it's good for reliable, you know, 24-7, 365 reliable power, but it's not very incentivized to evolve and change, even though we now have very different technologies, right, in the form of microgrids that could replace traditional resources, meaning coal, natural gas, and nuclear I live in a very nuclearized state. 40% of our grid power comes from nuclear. It's phasing out because it's just not cost-effective compared to solar, wind, and batteries. Nothing against the technology. Uh, we will solve the, the waste problem. We haven't yet, but we will eventually solve the waste problem. And there will be a next gen of, of nuclear. I don't know in time for the energy transition because it takes so long to develop those, uh, those power plants. I mean, that's the other thing, right? You can develop a solar farm in three years. Um, it takes 15 years. If you look at Vogel in, in uh, Georgia, which is the most recent plant to come online, it took 15 years and many, many cost overruns. And so the Georgians are now paying for that um, dearly. It's, it's quite expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So if you were to um, sort of like steel man argument against these policies, because a lot of people obviously are not for government intervention and, and they say, hey, let's let the private sector sort of determine or work itself out. If you were to make a steel man argument, you mean for the straw it, man? Well, this, yeah. I mean, if you were to try to really put yourself in the position of those that are against any sort of like policy, what would be the argument that you'd make? You know, uh, we subsidize fossil fuels to the tune of seven trillion dollars a year globally. There's very credible evidence that this is a major thing. And, and so all forms of energy are subsidized. You can't build a nuclear power plant um, without getting the government to backstop that project because private industry will not insure a nuclear power plant. It's so dangerous, okay? History has shown, right? And so there is a very critical role that government plays, and this includes creating programs and subsidies. You know, in my home state of Illinois, we have a program called Illinois Solar for All or Illinois... Um, well, we have Illinois Solar for All and we have Illinois Shines. Illinois Solar for All is a program for low and middle income people and Illinois Shines is the mainstream program. 
that program, all it's, it's, it's quite simple. It, it puts a small fee on my Ameren power bill, my IOU, my investor-owned utility power bill. Um, I just looked this morning. It was $3 last month. And that money goes into a central pot that then pays out to residents who decide to install solar or invest in community solar farms. And so the, the money is not ever touching government hands, actually. It's just going from Ameren directly to consumers and project developers and project owners who are using what's called RECs, Renewable Energy Credits, which is just a form of money, actually, to exchange uh, electrons. Electrons from solar wind, uh, solar wind farms to, um, to subsidize the cost of energy. So anyway... From day one, you know, in the United States, you look at the highways, right, our national highways. We would not have had those if it weren't for the government because no company is going to say, oh, I'm going to build this massive piece of infrastructure and pray that someone uses it and we can monetize it and turn a profit. It's so big and, and so amorphous that private industry is just not going to do it. Now, private industry did build they did do the construction, right? So private companies and, and, and laborers and jobs were created in the process of creating the highway system. And now we're just, we're doing the same for clean energy. We're greening the grid. It's creating jobs. And yes, some things are subsidized. Like there's now subsidies for building a factory in the United States, right? And that's why foreign companies are building factories by in, in the gobs, right? This includes the Norwegians and the Germans and the Koreans, they're building real high-wage jobs that are building clean infrastructure, solar panels, EVs, batteries, et cetera, here in America. What's not to love about that? But it took the IRA, right? It took that legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, to make it happen. And, and so that's where government really has a role. If you, if you take that out of the picture, fine, but level the playing field, right? You have to desubsidize fossil fuels, and and energy and you know i'm curious how that would what that would look like right that would be an interesting grand experiment but seven trillion dollars is a lot of resources going into fossil fuels and unfortunately we know that that's borrowing from our future right it's creating a less certain future for humanity i like to say i'm part of creating a safer healthier future for humanity and that's what is such a feel good about being in solar yeah no absolutely you know, there are a lot of people that would argue that, um, well, first of all, it should just be said that solar in the United States is amongst the most expensive solar that's deployed in the world. And if you t and particularly on the residential side. True. And, you know, where California is the most expensive residential solar that's installed, generally speaking, in the world. It's really expensive. Um, and um, many people have pointed to these policies that sort of like prop up inefficient companies, perhaps, or, or inject pretty significant amounts of money. Uh, toward uh, these uh, the, the people that are selling these residential services. Now, moving policy aside, why is it that the United States remains so expensive on the resident or on solar specifically, but residential solar, solar specifically, but residential solar right. in particular? Yeah, it, people way smarter than me have analyzed this problem and concluded that it's basically the soft cost, even though the hard costs are 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 somewhat of a delta, meaning the cost of the equipment is one thing. Um, we have tariffs, uh, so that makes the equipment more expensive. You know, you can buy solar panels for 23 cents a watt in other parts of the world. Here in the U.S., it's more like 30 cents a watt. And But our soft costs are higher. The cost of permitting a project in, in time and money are greater. We have not streamlined the permitting process for uh, renewable energy or other forms of construction in ways that they have in Europe and Australia. Those are the two countries, like Germany and Australia, get pointed out a lot in this as having like a dollar less a watt cost, like a 30% re reduced cost in uh, residential solar. And it has to do with their, their having streamlined the process so that there's less time involved on the developer, the installer. Um, it's both, right? Less government, less government work, because it's like click of the button. You can get a permit the same day or next day. And there is an initiative at the DOE, uh, which is a partnership between industry and government to develop something called SolarApp, 
which is used by installers and jurisdictions, meaning cities, local governments, who are issuing permits, to create that process of a very fast and efficient home uh, install permit, which it should be, right? It's not rocket science. We're putting electrical equipment. Everything around us is using electricity, the lighting, the HVAC, the stove, the refrigerator, right, et cetera. And solar is just another appliance that is going to collect electron, collect electrons from the sun in the form of photons and then run that into your infrastructure, into the home and into the grid. It doesn't have to be scary and dangerous and complicated, and we can make it a lot cheaper. That's my assessment. It's just, just like we need to streamline that. Yeah, Tim, it's actually even more shocking that, in fact, right now in Europe, manufacturers are selling solar into distribution for like 12 to 14 cents mm. per euro cents okay. per watt. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's shocking how inexpensive solar has gotten in Europe. And, 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 and there's a lot of reasons for that right now, but there's just been a lot of modules that have flooded that. And so distribution is full of them. And as a result, the auction prices uh, for modules in the European market are like that 12 to 15 euro cents. Now, that's not yeah. obviously the standard price, but you can certainly get them um, at, the, at those prices. Yeah, and prices have collapsed, right? Solar prices go up and down, and right now they're, sure. they're quite low in the greater scheme of things. Yeah, yeah. And, and generally speaking, lower prices is good for our industry. I'm not, you know, that's a good thing. It's just something that we have to deal with. Um, and we'd love to see those costs come down further, frankly, right? So, Of course, yeah. The more affordable, the better. Uh, so what sort of advice would you have? I know that you speak with a lot of executives and entrepreneurs and professionals. What, what sort of advice would you have for budding or aspiring professionals and entrepreneurs in the renewable space in terms of like uh, if they were trying to orchestrate or manufacture a career early stages? Yeah, I help uh, young professionals and established professionals uh, get into the solar industry or find uh, find a footing in a different part of the part of the industry. So that is part of my work as a coach and consultant. And first and foremost, they need to talk to lots of other solar uh, solar and battery storage professionals who've kind of been there, done that, so that they don't reinvent the wheel. If they're entrepreneurial and they want to start something of their own, I'm like, great, love it. I'm an entrepreneur myself. I totally resonate. But you have to find a problem that's worth solving um, or find a market that's being underserved, right? Let's say you want to start a solar installation company. Could be there's there's room in the market still. The U.S. market is certainly not saturated, but you have to be careful, right? Because it's a very geographically centric market. There's good markets and there's neutral markets and there's bad markets. And, you know, Florida is a great market in the greater scheme of things, but that's mostly utility scale. And there is residential solar happening, but not the way it is in, say, the Midwest or the Northeast or in California. Um, and the same goes with Texas. Texas is a great solar market, a lot of solar happening, but again, it's mostly utility scale. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily, that wouldn't be the first place to become an installer, although there are installers in both of those states. So talk to you know seasoned professionals, uh, find a coach or consultant or mentor. I also do mentoring. Um, I, I mentor a military veteran from the Air Force who's now getting into clean uh, energy, probably into solar. And it's, it's really about networking. Uh, use LinkedIn. Go to the RE Plus regional events. They have events all over the country now. There's at least like half a dozen of them. There's one in the Midwest in Chicago now in November. There's one in the Northeast in Boston. They have a Florida show. They have one in the Carolinas. They have one in Philly. They have one in Texas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's the big kahuna in R at RE in, in Vegas. And that's just the RE organization. There's others. There's InterSolar. And we have a, a lovely regional event here called the Midwest Solar Expo, which used to be in Minneapolis. Now it's in Chicago. Go to those network. You can volunteer so you can get into the event for free. And, and then you're there and you're shaking hands and meet, meeting and greeting. And then you'll have some free time when you can network and talk to uh, companies that are you know exhibiting trade show. The trade shows are wonderful. Now they're skewed because they're mostly manufacturers, OEMs. This is, you know, inverters, solar panels, racking companies, and then some <clears throat> service providers, software companies like Scanafly or Bodhi uh, for customer service. Um, 
and and then there's developers and installers, and some and developers and installers will exhibit, although relatively few, um, because they're very niched down and in some ways trying to fly under the radar. They don't necessarily, um, you know, need a bunch of en- other energy professionals knocking on the door. They're out there trying to find landowners or facility owners, and a trade show is just not the best place to do that. So they're there for networking. So they are there, but they won't have a booth per se. But go to those events, go to the, the happy hours, the socials, shake hands, exchange business cards, and, and dive in. Uh, you know, if you, if you dive in, you will find a niche that excites you, interests you, and resonates with your background and that could be in technology, it could be in sales, it could be in engineering, it could be in finance, it could be in sales and marketing, who knows, um, or the trades, right? We need lots of trades people. So those are a few things that people should do. But most importantly, find, find a few storied professionals who have been around the block, you know, for at least five years. And you could find people that have been in the industry for 15 now um, and, and talk to them. Yeah, I would say that our industry particularly, but I think just generally across the United States, we need more people really championing the ideas that the vocations are such a critical part of the infrastructure of the United States. And particularly this energy transition, it's so critical that the vocations are really propped up and supported. And, 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 and you know, it, 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 you'd made mention at the beginning of the podcast, we need a million electricians. And, uh, um, and, and not only electricians, but all the other supplemental uh, supplementary uh, positions that, that go alongside supporting the electricians and, and all other parts of this energy transition. I think there's just wonderful opportunities, whether you're the type of person that wants to work with your hands or the type of person that wants to work with technology, the type of person that wants to work in the sales and marketing arenas, uh, figuring out how to uh, proliferate and sell. I think there's just such wonderful opportunities in this space and sector right now, and we should be really excited about that, embracing that, and, and really driving uh, young entrepreneurs and professionals toward looking for opportunities to really help this industry grow. And I, I, I don't think that, you know, I think that there's just wonderful opportunities there. Yeah, my own son is a great example. He went to one year of college, very smart kid, um, could have become an engineer, done anything he wanted to become. But college really wasn't his cup of tea. It was too theoretical. And so he took a hiatus, worked in construction for a year, and now he's a, a solar installer with a wonderful company from the Midwest, from Michigan, called Harvest Energy, which is well-known here in central Illinois. They do a lot of farms and small businesses. We have a brewery that's completely solarized by Harvest, and he's he's loving it. And, you know, he avoids putting, you know, three more years of his effort into a college degree that he's probably not going to use and, and learning the ropes from the ground up. And eventually, he'll become a great, you know, manager and, and maybe... Uh, business owner himself, but he just has a, you know, pure growth career for the next 30 years. You can't go wrong getting into solar, really, no matter what age. I'm in my late uh, 50s now. I've got another 10 years of runway. 10 years is a long time in a career. And mm-hmm. um, and younger people, of course, have 30 years or 40 years of career runway. We have all of that uh, in the in the energy transition. Um and, and it's worthwhile doing, right? Because it's helping us decarbonize the economy and step back from the brink of climate chaos. Yeah, I, I, I think the statistic is, is that 96% of all of the S&P 500 have some sort of an ESG initiative, stated ESG initiative. It's not an audited, uh, like in their financials, their accounting practices, right. but it seems like there's a general sentiment that's certainly driving people toward uh, these environmental uh, and decarbonization, decarbonizing our, our, our economy. What are some of the things that sort of like give you hope as you talk to these entrepreneurs in terms of just generally trying to make an impact? It really is individuals that make a difference in the world. Technology is wonderful. Okay, I love technology. I'll give you an example. Craig Lewis, uh, that's the episode that dropped yesterday or dropped this morning, actually. Um, he is the founder of the Clean Coalition um, in California, and they have been going around the country and developing community-scale microgrids. Well, I'd never heard of a community-scale microgrid before I interviewed Craig, but Craig is, has been in clean energy since 2009. He saw the Enron debacle. Enron was an energy company uh, that got involved in some nefarious things, gaming the market in California in particular, and it caused 
um, losses for business owners and consumers. And I was living in California during that crisis. So anyway, he now works with communities, cities, and utilities to create large-scale microgrids with mostly solar and batteries, but also some including wind. And so you, any, uh, you know, our listeners are, are probably somewhat familiar with a microgrid, right? You have a generator, a battery, or a storage device, and, and then a part of the grid that can island. And that gives communities resiliency in the face of, let's say, storms, firestorms, or a hurricane and an outage at tens of thousands of people scale, though, not just a home or a building, which you can do, right? You can, of course, make the hospital operate off-grid with a generator and a solar array and a battery. Um, so that's one thing is, is to remember that people really make the world go round, and it just takes a, a passionate leader to really make an impact. And um, timing is, is important too, right? You, you know, you could have the greatest technology in the world, but if the market isn't ready for that technology, it may not take off. Um, it, it has to, it, you have to have a confluence of events, but, um, I've seen this time and time again, you know, I, I mentioned Mike Hall, he's a, he's a great example. And that was a family company. His, his brothers and his father were involved. Um, and it was, it was partially that they were in the right market, you know, Southern California, early adopting market. Some of the storied technology companies like SunPower come out of, uh, California, Next Tracker. And, um, and then guys like Sean White, who is a master PV trainer. Sean is the author of nine books. Uh, he does a lot of NABCEP training. That's like his thing. And Sean has been on my show a couple of times. We just did a third recording last week at RE Plus in Vegas. I just love Sean's, uh, you know, passion for bringing other professionals along, helping them go further faster. That's one of my mantras is I help you go further faster, whether you're a business owner an OEM or an individual, and Sean does this on mass and um, and does it very well. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so, what are some of the goals? Obviously, you're a thought leader, you're a content creator. You've been able to give a lot of people a strong voice through the the mediums that you have. What are some of the goals that you have, uh, both in the future? Maybe for not just for the Clean Power Hour, but for yourself individually and other content creation opportunities that you have in front of you. I mean, the big goal is to be part of a movement, an economic movement, and a cultural movement to clean the economy and create a safer, healthier future for humanity here on Earth. The Earth is gonna be fine if we have <laughs> runaway climate change, right? I'm an ecologist by training. The Earth has been here for billions of years and it'll be here for several more billion years. The question is, can we maintain the good life that we have that fossil fuels gave us? I'm so grateful, you know, for the discovery of fossil fuels because it really was an uptick. The energy density of a barrel of oil is amazing. You have five years of human labor embedded in a 50-gallon drum of oil. It's, in, it's just incredible how much work you can do with a barrel of oil. It is a truly uh, awesome force. Now, it's not recyclable though, right? Once you burn the oil, it's gone. It's in CO2 in the atmosphere and it takes work to suck that out and reverse the influences of those, of those heat trapping gases. So um, it's a transition, right? It's a trans transitory technology. And so I see myself as a catalyst, right? I am helping people go further faster, whatever that journey is, right? Getting into the industry or being more successful in the industry growing their company faster, growing their technology faster. These are good things. That is really my, my aim. I don't, I, there, were, there was a time when I was very knee deep in solar development. Um, I was a developer for EDPR, the Portuguese utility, which now is based in Houston. And you know, at that time I was thinking, okay, I'm gonna try to get involved with a terawatt of energy development, Tim Montague, and, and be able to say to my grandkids, you know, hey, I built this, I built this, I built this, I built this. Well, things haven't really worked out that way and I'm no longer knee deep in the industry in that role and that's fine. I'm very happy being a media company and being a catalyst and, and helping others understand that change doesn't have to be scary. It's like, I talk to a lot of consumers who are still very 
questioning of solar energy technology. And it doesn't help that there are uh, some nefarious business practices. You see ads on social media here in Illinois saying, get your solar for free. Well, nothing is yep. free. That is a complete lie. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm really disgusted, frankly, that some business people will use tactics like that just to get into a conversation with consumers and try to sell them something. Um, ultimately, it is good for the consumer. A consumer can save 900 to to $1,000 a year by installing solar on their roof. That is good for them. Then they can do other stuff. They can go and take a vacation. They can upgrade their HVAC. They can get better medical care, send their kids to college or whatever they want to do with those resources, right? So freeing up resources in the form of the energy transition is actually good for consumers. And that's another feel good, but it's good for, it's good for health, right? We're reducing pollution. It's good for our pocketbook and it's good for a safer, healthier future for humanity. Yeah. A couple of things that you've talked about here is, is unfortunately a lot of the pollution that is, is, you know, these, uh, uh, these heat trapping gases that we talk about, CO2, methane, other things like that, that are causing our climate to, to yeah. get increasingly hot. But then there's other pollutants as well that you can see. In fact, you know, you talked about how you like to see uh, these these uh, wind generation stations. And and I lived in California for a very long time. And you could drive from the fi- on the 580 uh, from Livermore over the Altamont, pa- Altamont, Altamont pa- Pass. Yep. Man, if I could talk. Been there. Um, and, and you'd see these huge wind generation stations. Um you know, and, and for people that would complain about that, the 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 I want to I want to just as an alternative, the, that entire Central Valley has what they call inversion, where you'd get these pollutants that during certain times of the year, yep. you'd actually see this haze or this cloud. And people that are my generation and my age will remember driving into L.A. and seeing a, a cloud of smog just um, you know over over the city. And a lot of that stuff has been dissipated because of the clean renewable. Uh, energy transition that we've been going through, you don't quite see it as bad. The smog, it's still there, but it's now that you can't see and smell a lot of these pollutants as much. We maybe have become or taken our foot off the pedal in some instances, but we can't do that. And at the time of this recording, I'm actually in Salt Lake City where we where we've experienced major inversion problems as well, where you get these low pressure systems that cause the pollutants to just sit and hang right over the top of the city. And people look at it and see it and the air quality is is poor. And for people that have compromised immune systems or, or breathing problems. They can't go outside during these certain times of the year. The problem's bigger than that though. Um, but, uh, but yeah. that should be enough for us to want to clean up, um, our, our, our air. But, but for those that, uh, that don't have, uh, compromised immune systems or, or, or aren't bothered by the pollutants in the air because of their breathing problems, asthmatic or other, other reasons, um, th- there, there are other gases that you can't see that we want to get rid of. And I would suggest that it's much better to look at a wind generation station uh, than to have to look at uh, the pollutants or to have to deal with the, the impacts of not having those wind generation stations. Yeah, the opportunity cost of not making the energy transition is ginormous. It's, it's, it's truly, I mean, we're killing over a million people a year just with uh, particulate pollution, right, from burning fossil fuels. Not to mention all of the coastal communities that are going to be impacted by rising sea levels and hurricanes and storms and flooding, right, from storms. So it's going to disrupt food systems, for example, in the less developed world. It already is. We see mass migration happening in Africa and Asia from climate change. It hasn't come to our back door so much yet. Although, if you notice, we do have an immigration problem now, right? There are Latin Americans pouring into the, uh, pouring across the Texas, New Mexico, Arizona border, and then ending up in big cities, New York and Chicago, which are building these tent cities. I'm not exactly sure what is driving that. Um, but, but anyway, when tens of thousands of strangers show up on your doorstep, the response that to, of locals to that is generally not pleasant. And, and I just think we want to avoid that if we can. Right. And, and so we should lean into the energy transition and, and avoid all those uncomfortable and costly and potentially deadly things. Yeah. I had joked before we started recording that this was going to be a masterclass and you teaching me how to do uh, my job better as a host. And I, um, I think that's absolutely been the case, but I've asked you for mul- multiple times. I've asked you for advice to give advice to other people, but uh, maybe some advice for myself as well as for other people that are trying to be content creators and trying to get the message out. What advice would you have for people that are trying to figure out what's the, the right medium for them to be able to share uh, the information that they have about the importance of this message? Or even more specifically, what advice would you have for people that are interested in starting a podcast or or, or getting involved with uh, more traditional media? 
it's not a one size fits all. Find <laughs> uh, find your passion. Uh, don't worry too much about statistics. Okay, create content, create regular content. You know, if you're if you're into podcasting or want to be into podcasting, you pretty much want to do that on a re- on a weekly basis if you can. That is the best way to get a, any kind of a regular following and get traction. But it's going to be years potentially before you're going to notice concrete results. One of my concrete results from being a podcaster for as long as I have now is that I have these few individuals out there who are super fans and my super fans refer me Mm -hmm. to customers. And so it does monetize in that format, but it took years and years of just slogging it out and turning on the mic and recruiting interesting guests. And it was very hard at first to, to recruit you know, noteworthy, established figureheads in the industry, so to speak. It gets easier over time, of course. And, and so, trust me, it will get easier. Um, you know, most brands, whether they're solar installers or manufacturers or service providers, if they don't have a podcast or something like a podcast today, in five years they will. It's like, it's just very clear that this form of media is something that people like and, and, and frankly expect right? Because you can fill people's days in ways that you couldn't before, right? In their drive. Now they can listen to uh, the solar podcast, right? While they're driving to and from work. And, and that's such a great opportunity when otherwise they would just be listening to the radio or maybe a book on tape. Um, but I would also say to people, don't, don't just go into one form of media. And that's a mistake that I made. I've recently gone back to also writing articles, something I did for my family's company for years, but only did recently in solar. I now have written several articles for PB Magazine and I, and I repurpose my content. So I'll do a panel discussion on, say, long duration energy storage, and then I'll grab some vignettes from, or case studies from certain manufacturers uh, that have an interest in that content, and then I'll write a story for PB Magazine. I wrote a story about the six terawatt hours of, of energy storage that we need to green the gli- uh, to clean and green the, gl- the grid, according to, uh, I think it was uh, BN, uh, Berkeley National Labs, BNL. But anyway, uh, do something good, get good at it, but then also try to repurpose your content in other ways um, because it's that transcript, right, of a recording that you and I are making today the transcript becomes a very powerful tool. You can at the very least make a blog post out of it. Of course, you can post it on social media, um, but you can even turn it into a higher form. You know, PV Magazine gets many more eyeballs than the Clean Power Hour website. So I, I'm, you know, it's a self-serving thing, but it's also good for my customers, my uh, interviewees, and the brands that I'm promoting. Yeah, that's amazing. Tim, I, I genuinely appreciate you coming off the show. We're, we're, we're coming off of just, well, our largest industry show, RE+. Both of you, you and I spent some time down there. You mentioned several other industry shows as well, but obviously that's one of our biggest ones. Um, what are some of the hot takes that you have, both as the time that you've spent as a, as a podcast host, as well as a solar professional, maybe some things that you learned actually just recently at RE+. What are some hot takes you could give for our listeners, sort of some parting words? It's fascinating to see the, uh, the technology and the variety of companies, you know, promoting solar panels, for example. You know, you, we, we, there's, a, there's a small cadre of well-known brands, you know, the Trinas, Canadian Solars, Q-Cells, but there's a huge cadre of lesser-known brands. And I had the pleasure of interviewing the founder of a company called Goldie Solar from India, but they've been going to RE Plus for uh, seven years now. And I had never run into them. And that's one of the things is RE Plus is a, is a huge show. There were, there were 40,000 people there, um, 1,300 booths. And you just can't visit all of those booths in a short period of time, especially when you have your own booth, which I did. And I was, I was busy recording interviews with, with uh, people like my call. And I, I got to do an interview with the founder of Goldie Solar. Um, so that's just cool to see the number of uh, solar panels, uh, battery companies, huge explosion there. Everyone I was talking to, uh, you know, I was always grabbing colleagues and saying, so what did you see? Because I wasn't able to spend that much time walking around. And they were like, oh, storage. Every other company is a storage company. 
And, um, you know, so there's writing on the wall there, right, that there's an opportunity. And today I like to say less than a percent of Americans have a battery in their garage in 10 years. Everyone's going to have a battery in their garage. Whether or not you have mm -hmm. a solar array on your roof, you're going to have a battery in your garage because it gives you resiliency, right? When the grid goes down, that battery can run your lighting and, and air conditioning or uh, your refrigeration, some of your loads, right? Um, and then I guess just the, what a wonderful community we have. That really stands out. Like everyone who I got to meet was so passionate for the environment and a safer, healthier future for humanity that, you know, we are a mission driven industry for, for the large, uh, for, for the, for, to a large extent. It's not that we're not capitalists. I am a proud capitalist. I'm here to make money just like all of these other people. And it's a great economic opportunity. It's a hundred trillion dollar wealth transfer opportunity, as some people like to say. And, and so we, sh we, we can benefit and you should, if you're not in the solar industry, check it out. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Tim, thank you so much for coming on. I strongly encourage uh, all of our listeners to go and check out all of the content that you're creating. The Clean Power Hour is a fantastic uh, podcast. It's available on all of the all of your favorite podcast listening locations. And uh, and Tim, it's been absolutely fantastic visiting with you. I look forward to hopefully having you come on again. Um, it's uh, again, you really are one of the true thought leaders in our space, and I th I thank you for your contribution to uh, helping to uh, facilitate, encourage, and catalyze this energy change as well. Well, likewise, Dave, what you're doing with the Solar Podcast is is truly awesome. And uh, so I want to thank you and thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. And as I like to say, let's grow solar and storage. I love that. Thanks so much, Tim. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Solar Podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and share us with your colleagues and friends who are passionate about solar, renewable energy, and the future of the environment. We'll talk with you soon.